Good morning again. Good morning to those of you who are here in the church and good morning to those of you who are joining us online from all kinds of different places and we've been delighted um, to hear from some of you. So thank you for being in touch and then just to remind you again um, this talk and then at 12 we will have adoration and at 4 in the afternoon we will have another talk and then tomorrow Mass in the morning at 10 which will be our weekly Mass in honour of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. <coughs> talk then at 11, tomorrow adoration at 12 and then a change in the programme tomorrow afternoon in that the afternoon talk will be at 3 rather than at 4 and that will be the end of our summer retreat then. Yesterday, in the mornings, I normally have a quick look on the, my phone at the Guardian newspaper and see what the headlines are at least to give me some orientation as to what's happening around the world. So yesterday, I jotted down some of the headlines. Floods in Germany. Now, when I look today, the reporting today is even worse than it was yesterday. Um, the death toll has passed 80 and there seem to be about 1,300 people missing. So a heat wave in the western United States and in western Canada that's leading to many deaths and wildfires all over the place. That COVID deaths in Africa increasing by 42% in a week, mostly because of a shortage of intensive care beds and of oxygen. The Amazon rainforest is now emitting more carbon than it absorbs, and that's um, very disturbing. And then how rising temperatures threaten workers from Nicaragua to Nepal. So a world in the midst of an ecological crisis that's part of a wider um, social and political crisis as well. So how do we follow Jesus in a world like this? That's what I'd like to reflect on this morning. If you went to Mass in Rome in the early 2nd century, we have an account of what happened from Justin Martyr. But if you went to Mass in Rome, as I say, in the early 2nd century, the liturgy would have included a collection for the poor. Now, the collection wasn't seen as something extra. The collections were actually seen as part of the liturgy itself. It was the community expressing its concern for the poor and assistance wasn't restricted to believers. That the community opened its heart um, to everybody who was in need. A collection for the poor almost goes back to the beginning. St. Paul arranged collections from the communities he visited to support impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. If you remember back to Monday, when we began our retreat, we looked at the difficulties the early church experienced as it moved out of the Jewish world into the wider Gentile world, and at the conflicts and at the tensions, and at how they were resolved through dialogue and conversation and compromise. And we read about that, of course, in the 15th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, and we also read about it in the letter to the Galatians, in the second chapter of the letter to the Galatians. And the, the accounts in Acts and Galatians aren't exactly the same, and it's probably best give more weight to the Galatians account, because Paul was present 
and Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, wasn't. But part of the compromise that was worked out in Jerusalem, probably in the year 48 AD, part of the compromise that was worked out at what we call the Council of Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council of the church, was that the Gentile communities would support the poor in the community of Jerusalem. And Paul encouraged that because he said that the Gentile Christians owed a debt, a spiritual debt, to the Jewish Christians because they had passed the faith on to them. So this teaching, this teaching, this this concern for the poor and this organizing of collections for the poor was inspired by the scriptures. The 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel, which is worth reading now and then and can be a little bit disturbing, the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel describes the judgment. And we're going to be judged on how we relate to our sisters and brothers who are more vulnerable and who are more needy than we are. And then, of course, there was the teaching of the prophets. And we've inherited the Jewish scriptures, and they're part of our um, scripture now as well. And the book of Sirach, if you had the book of Sirach, and if you went to the fourth chapter of the book of Sirach, and you went to the very beginning of the chapter, this is what you would read. This is what you would hear. And remember, of course, when the scriptures are proclaimed, Jesus is speaking to us. My child, do not cheat the poor of their living, and do not keep needy eyes waiting. Do not grieve the hungry or anger one in need. Do not add to the troubles of the desperate or delay giving to the needy. Do not reject a supplicant in distress or turn your face away from the poor. Do not avert your eyes from the needy and give no one reason to curse you. For if in bitterness of soul some should curse you, their creator will hear their prayer. So there's the background, as I say, in Matthew 25, and then um, the teaching of the prophets. Now, the focus was on charity rather than on justice. And today I think we're more aware of the need for charity and justice. And the charity can never substitute um, for justice. The charity complements justice, but can never substitute for it. And in Catholic social teaching, as we, Catholic social teaching as we have it today, with a very strong focus on justice and social transformation, can be said to begin with Leo XIII and Rerum Novarum in 1891. It was, for its time, a very radical document. The world had changed. We had the Industrial Revolution. We had the poor flocking to the cities. We had people working in subhuman conditions in factories all over Europe and North America because the focus was on Europe and North America at the time. And the church, up until Leo XIII, tended to side with the establishment. It tended to look at things through the lens of those in power it was afraid of change. You'd have to say, I think it was afraid of the agenda that was being thrown up by the poor and by those who advocated on behalf of the poor. And of course, because of our slowness in responding to a changed world 
and to the needs of the poor. We lost the poor in so many places. But Leo XIII made a breakthrough with Rerum Novarum, and we've been building on that ever since. A friend of mine says, and she says, this is what always happens to the church. The church always arrives breathless and a little late. So the workers had thrown up an agenda. We didn't respond to it immediately. By the time we got around to responding to it, some of them had despaired of us. But we did arrive, even if breathless and even if a little late. But we lost the working classes in so many parts of Europe because of the tardiness of our response and because of the over-identification of the church with the establishment, with the upper classes, with power. But the Spirit works outside the church as well as within the church. And when, as it were, the church had closed its ears to the cry of the poor, the Spirit stirred up other people who were going to listen to that cry and advocate on behalf of the poor. And if we think of the working classes in 19th century Europe and North America and their cry and how slow the church was in responding to it, we need to ask ourselves, are there similar things, similar groups, similar needs that we are ignoring and not responding very well to in our world today? I want to read a little piece of, I want to read a letter for you really that Pope Francis wrote recently. He wrote this letter to Father James Martin. James Martin is an American Jesuit whose ministry is to the um, LGBTQ plus um, community. And it's an extraordinary ministry, but he has been vilified for it in certain quarters of the church. But he wrote to the Pope. His nephew, he's a Jesuit like the Pope, of course, and the Pope sees him occasionally. And Father Martin's nephew made confirmation. And he chose Francis as his confirmation name. And he wore a pair of socks with Pope Francis's picture on the socks. So Father Martin sends a photograph of the socks to the Pope with his letter. You need to know that um, to to, to, um, to understand this first bit of the letter. So it's, my dear brother, thank you for your mail and for the photos. Please thank your nephew for his kindness to me and, and for having chosen the name Francis and congratulate him on the socks. He made me laugh. Tell him that I pray for him and ask him to do the same for me. Regarding your PS, which was about an outreach LGBT ministry conference, I want to thank you for your pastoral zeal and your ability to be close to people with that closeness that Jesus had and that reflects the closeness of our God. Our Heavenly Father approaches with love every one of his children, each and every one. His heart is open to each and every one. He is Father. God's style has three aspects, closeness, compassion, and tenderness. Closeness, compassion, and tenderness. This is how he draws closer to each one of us. Thinking about your pastoral work, and remember this pastoral work now is with the LGBTQ plus community. Thinking about your pastoral work, 
I see that you are continuously looking to imitate this style of God. You are a priest for all men and women, just as God is the father of all men and women. I pray for you to continue in this way, being close, compassionate, and with great um, tenderness. And I pray for your faithful, your parishioners, and any one whom the Lord places in your care, so that you protect them and make them grow in the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a beautiful letter, and it takes us right to the heart of the gospel. But to go back, of course, to Rerum Novarum, it began a journey that the Church has been on um, ever since. Um, and Pope Francis, of course, has contributed to the development of Catholic social teaching. He's done it in Laudato Si in 2015 and then in 2020 in Fratelli Tutti. And he writes in Fratelli Tutti, as I was writing this letter, the COVID-19 pandemic unexpectedly erupted, exposing our false securities. Aside from the different ways that various countries responded to the crisis, their inability to work together became evident. For all our hyper-connectivity, we witnessed a fragmentation that made it more difficult to resolve the problems that affect us all. Anyone who thinks that the only lessons to be learned was the need to improve what we were already doing or to refine existing systems and regulations is denying reality, that we can't go back to the way things were. But as Catholic social teaching has developed since Rerum Novarum, seven key principles have emerged. The first is the dignity of the human person, from the womb to the tomb. And it's tragic, I think, that legislation um, allowing for euthanasia is making its way through Dáil Éireann at present. The experience, I think, of every other country is that when you set out on that journey, you're setting out on a slippery slope and that the vulnerable become even more vulnerable. So the dignity of the human person from the womb to the tomb. That the human person is not only sacred, but social. The importance of marriage, the importance of the family, the importance of community. That human rights need to be protected, but also that we have responsibilities and we need to meet those responsibilities. That a basic moral test, a basic moral test for any society is how do we treat the most vulnerable that the economy should be at the service of people, not people at the service of the economy, that we're all one human family, solidarity, that we're all one human family, and that there's no place for racism. And most recently, particularly under the leadership of Pope Francis, care for God's creation. So the dignity of the human person that the human person is a social being, that human rights need to be protected and responsibilities need to be met, 
that a basic moral test is how we treat the most vulnerable, that the economy needs to be at the service of people, that we're one human family, that we're all interconnected, and that we're called to care for God's creation. In Laudato Si, and it merits um, serious thought and reflection and prayer, the Pope reminds us, and I think the COVID pandemic has brought this home even more clearly, the Pope reminds us that the poor are disproportionately affected by climate change. All the headlines I had from yesterday's Guardian had to do with the consequences of climate change in our world. That the poor are disproportionately affected by climate change, just as the poor were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And the Pope talks about the need for an appreciation of the immense dignity of the poor. And that's an important phrase, I think, the immense dignity of the poor. Migration is very closely linked to climate change. Now, there are other reasons for it, but climate change is, is, is one of the factors that's driving people to leave their homes and their own countries. War, of course, as well, and, and famine and drought. But famine and drought, of course, are connected into the climate change crisis. But the United Nations estimates that 82 million people, imagine that, 82 million people have been forced to flee their homes for different reasons. That 26 million of these are classed as refugees. That 13 million of them are under the age of 18. Earlier in June, um, Pope Francis, in one of his talks, talked about the Mediterranean as being Europe's biggest graveyard. And it's a powerful but disturbing image. The Mediterranean, Europe's biggest graveyard. That between 2014 and now, 17,000 migrants have drowned while trying to cross the Mediterranean. 17,000 people drowned in Europe's biggest graveyard. And what happens when these refugees and asylum seekers finally get to Ireland? We incarcerate them in direct provision centres. And I use the word incarceration purposefully because that's actually what we're doing. And it's, it's as if we've learned nothing from the past. It's as if we've learned nothing from the mental hospitals, from the orphanages, from the industrial schools. It's as if we just continue on the same pattern of incarcerating the poor and the vulnerable. And I have no doubt that in 20 or 30 years time there will be a commission of inquiry into direct provision centre. We mightn't even have to wait that long for it. Just as I think there will be a commission of inquiry in the not too distant future into how the elderly were treated in our nursing homes and hospitals during the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic. The poor, as Pope Francis says, are always disproportionately affected by economic and political and social difficulties. But back to Laudate Si. Everything is connected. We know that, don't we? But it's good to be reminded of it, that everything is connected. We are, as Pope Francis says, part of nature. It's not nature and us. 
It's not out there. That we are part of it. We're included in it. And thus we're in constant interaction with it. And if you think that through to the incarnation, Jesus, of course, then became human. But he also became part of the natural world. Because in becoming human, he became part of created reality. So the incarnation impacts on, on, on created reality as well. For Francis has this phrase, of course, and others use it as well, less is more. I think the Christian tradition of Lent and the Muslim tradition of Ramadan remind us that less is more. During those periods of Christian observance and Muslim observance, we're invited you know, to fast, to be generous, to share. So less is more. And Pope Francis again reminds us that, that Christian spirituality offers an alternative to extreme consumerism. Because our tradition, and Lent, I think, and Ramadan reflect this especially, emphasize moderation and the capacity to be happy with less. See, we've been told all the time in this consumerist world of ours that the more you have, the happier you'll be. Whereas the Christian tradition, I think, the Muslim tradition, the traditions of other faiths, tell us something quite different. They're telling us that less is more. That sometimes the less you have, the happier you'll be. Now, I'm not advocating extreme poverty because we have to lift people up out of poverty. But moderation, moderation in all things. And Pope Francis, in his analysis of what's going on in the world today, says that widespread indifference and selfishness, so it brings us back to the common sins, as we might call them, indifference and selfishness, worsen environmental problems, just as they worsen social problems. That selfishness, he said, undermines the notion of the common good. You might remember Margaret Thatcher infamously said once, there's no such thing as society. But as Christians, we know that that's not true. We know that there is society, that there is community, that we are connected and that we belong to each other. So we're called to a change of heart. As followers of Jesus, we're always being called to a change of heart, a change of perspective, a new outlook. But Pope Francis says, and he's not the only one saying it, but he says it very articulately, that we're called to an ecological conversion. So when we talk about conversion, we need not just to focus on our own little sins, as we're maybe inclined to do, and they're mostly little sins, I think, but to look at the broader picture and see where do we fit into that picture and what can we do? How are we going to hear the cry of the poor? And how are we going to hear the cry of the earth? And what are we going to do about it? So if we go back to the early church, um, John Chrysostom was in the eastern part of the church, a great preacher, great theologian. And in the year 388 or 389, he preached a sermon on the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And just let's listen to the story first, and then let's listen to what John Chrysostom has to say about it. So it's in the um, 16th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, beginning at the 19th verse. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, 
who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table, even though the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone raises from the dead, rises from the dead. So we, like them, have Abraham and the prophets and the Gospels and a wonderful, rich um, tradition of, of social um, teaching. Chrysostom is interesting and his sermons are interesting. He says in one of his sermons that the two most dangerous words in our vocabulary are mine and thine. That the two most dangerous words in our vocabulary are mine and thine. But this is from one of his sermons on a series of three homilies that he preached on the story of Lazarus and, and the rich man. I shall bring you this testament, he says, from the Holy Scriptures, saying that only theft, not only theft of others' goods, but also the failure to share one's goods with others is theft and swindle and defraudation. So it's not just about stealing. It's about holding on and not sharing. For Chrysostom, that's the equivalent of theft. To deprive is to take what belongs to another, for it is called deprivation when we take and keep what belongs to others. For our money is the Lord's, however we may have gathered it. If we provide for those in need, we shall obtain great plenty. This is why God allowed you to have more. This is interesting, I think. This is why God allowed you to have more, not for you to waste it on prostitutes, drink, fancy goods, fancy food, expensive clothes, and all kinds of indulgences, but to distribute it to those in need. So sharp words, but taking us right back um, to the very early stages of the church. So a question then for our praying and our reflecting today, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a world that's faced with environmental and social and political and economic catastrophe. The talks are being recorded and they can be found on podcasts. Now, this is a world beyond my 
comprehension. But there are podcasts, and you'll find them on our Facebook site. Um, If you go to our website, it'll direct you to our Facebook site, and you'll find all the talks from the retreat there. And they're in sequence, so if you wanted to go back and listen to any of them, um, you'll be able to do it that way. Or if you missed out and want to catch up on some of it, you'll be able to do it there. So it's on the Redemptors Facebook site. They are also, I believe, on the Diocesan website. So you can access them um, in a number of places. So we'll have adoration at 12. I'll be back again at 4. And then tomorrow, Father Jerry, at 10 and 11 and 12 in the morning and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon rather than at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So thank you again, wherever you are, for joining us.